Welcome to the 2008 Criswell Theological Lectures. It's great to see you here today. And I want to introduce our special guest, our speaker of the week. He'll be speaking today, of course, tomorrow at 10 o'clock and also Thursday at 10 o'clock. And so I urge you to invite others to come and hear Dr. Richard Land. Dr. Richard Land is no stranger to us here at the Criswell College. He was one of my professors back in the 1980s. He was vice president here for academic affairs. He was also a professor. He was my professor of our two or three courses. He is now serving as president of the Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's been recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Uh, Dr. Land is an accomplished author. He is a broadcaster. He used to be on KCBI right here, Issues of the 80s. Uh, now, Richard Land Live and for Faith and Family. He's just written a fascinating book, The Divided States of America. What liberals and conservatives are missing in the God and country shouting match. I'm sure he's going to talk some about this book. We're going to have this book available after uh, the lecture today and tomorrow and Thursday. So be prepared to get one of these books. Dr. Land will be around to sign the book as well. Dr. Land, we're glad that you're a Criswell College man, but uh, now with the whole Southern Baptist Convention and really influencing, I think, the ebb and flow on the political scene in the United States, we're glad you're here today. Would you join me welcoming Dr. Richard Land? Thank you, uh, Dr. Johnson. It is a delight to be here have the opportunity to uh, speak on this subject and be back at uh, Crystal College. I have uh, fond memories of my days here, and uh, Dr. Johnson reminded me of when I had him in class, which means that uh, he reminded me of when we were both young men, um, or at least younger uh, than we are today. Um, this book, The Divided States of America, question mark, what liberals and conservatives are missing in the God and country shouting match is a, a book that um, is about 40 years, the product of 40 years reflection on the part of a Baptist Christian American, myself, on the issue of separation of church and state and how we reconcile that with religious freedom and how we reconcile it with our commandment from our Savior to go out into the society and to be salt and light. Now, this book is an equal opportunity offender. Uh, I have a chapter on here on what I think the conservatives are getting wrong. And I have a chapter in here on what I think the liberals are getting wrong, and they're about the same length, the two chapters. Now, the shorthand version is that what the conservatives are getting wrong is that they far too often, they far too often assume that God is on their side or that God is on America's side. We must never assume that. What we must do is the much more difficult task of trying to make certain that we are on God's side. 
as Abraham Lincoln uh, was reminded by one of his cabinet members during the darkest days of the Civil War. He was asked, uh, the cabinet member said, well, Mr. President, God is on our side. And the president replied, well, I'm more concerned that we be on God's side. And so we must always examine what our country is doing. We must seek to bring our country under the sway of the principles of righteousness and do our very best to make certain that we're on God's side. What, are the liberals getting wrong? Well, too often, liberals assume that God doesn't have a side, that public policy issues are neutral, that God hasn't spoken on some of the compelling issues that we face as a nation, or if they think that he has spoken, they think that through some misguided and twisted and erroneous understanding of the doctrine of separation of church and state, that somehow, even if God has a side, God's side is disqualified from consideration when it comes to dealing with the moral and social and public policy issues that we face as a nation. Now, I am willing to acknowledge that God may not have a side when it comes to the NAFTA and the CAFTA trade agreements. But God has a side when it comes to the sanctity of all human life, from conception to natural death and everywhere in between. God is pro-life. And God has a side when it comes to society trying to redefine his institution, holy matrimony, to be something other than a marriage between one man and one woman for life. God has a side when it comes to racism and prejudice. God is for racial reconciliation. God is no respecter of persons. And in God's sight, we are all equal. And we have an obligation and a responsibility to bring those convictions to bear on public policy. Now, much of what I'm going to be sharing with you uh, is going to be an attempt to understand how, what is the proper relationship? What is the proper relationship between two divinely ordained institutions? There are only three divinely ordained institutions in human society. The first is the family. God ordained the family as the basic building block of society. It's not good for man to be alone. And so God made him a helpmate, a completor, and the two became one flesh. God created us to find completion in a partner of the opposite sex in a lifetime marital commitment. And he intended for children to be reared in homes with a mother and a father and to be reared in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in such homes. The second divinely ordained institution is the church. God ordained the church. The church is not a human institution. The church is a divine institution. It is the people of God in all of their various denominational manifestations 
the local church, which is made up of baptized believers, and then the church universal, which is made up of those of all denominational stripes who have crossed the threshold from being people who believe in Jesus as the Savior to believing that Jesus is their Savior. That is the critical distinction. I believe that all Christians are saved. Christians are people who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are trusting the Jesus who lived. The Jesus that was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected on Easter Sunday, and was ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. I believe all Christians are saved. That doesn't mean all Baptists. Because there are Baptists who believe that Jesus is the Savior, but they've never accepted him as their Savior. It must, that the Christians and the church universal is made up of people who have made that distinction and understood it and have accepted Christ as their Savior because Christianity is first and foremost a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The third divinely ordained institution is the civil magistrate. The Apostle Paul, in the most sustained passage in the New Testament, dealing with government, makes it clear that government is a divinely ordained institution. It is ordained of God. Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves condemnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, the civil magistrate, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. God ordained the civil magistrate, and he ordained the civil magistrate first and foremost to punish those who do that which is wrong and to reward those who do that, do that which is right. They are God's instrument for justice in a fallen and sinful society. And that is why, for instance, if someone kills my wife, I do not have the right to take vengeance upon them. I do not have the right to uh, seek personal vengeance, or I don't even have the right to hate them. With God's help, I'm supposed to seek to love them. But I do have the right to expect the civil magistrate to punish them to the fullest extent of the law. They bear not the sword in vain. In a civilized society, as God understands it, and as God has decreed it, the civil magistrate has a monopoly on the use of violence. It is only the government that can authorize armed force internally 
against criminal activity and externally against threats beyond the shores of the United States in our military. Our forefathers understood this. When we declared our independence from Great Britain, we spent, our forefathers spent most of that document declaring all the reasons why England had ceased to be a legitimate government. All of the things that the crown had done that had trampled their rights as freeborn Englishmen under Magna Carta and under the uh, Glorious Revolution uh, of 1688. And they then said, as a result, as a result, we are declaring our independence and we are forming a new government. And that new government then authorized the Continental Army to be raised and to be armed and to be trained to defend the new government against the foreign government that was seeking to uh, impose its power upon the American people. Our forefathers did not claim the right to take up private arms against the state. They said the state had ceased to be a legitimate state it had failed its purposes, it had trampled their rights, and they created a new state. That's one of the many reasons that the American Revolution was such a success and the French Revolution was such a catastrophe because the French Revolution never understood that distinction and it quickly degenerated into a reign of terror and a bloodbath of unimaginable proportions. So. In these three days, we're going to be talking about two of those divinely ordained institutions, the church and the state. The church has its realm. The state has its realm. We could talk about a lot of different issues, and we could see the distinction. For instance, when it comes to the immigration issue, the state is supposed to enforce the law. That means securing the borders. That means enforcing the law. If the law is unenforceable, then we need to change the law. Although, I think most of you would agree with me that the United States government can enforce the laws that it chooses to enforce. An example that comes to mind is the Internal Revenue Service. You don't pay your taxes, and they will come and get you. And so all it takes is the will of the government to enforce the law. And as people who believe in the rule of law, we support the law being enforced. But we are not only citizens of America. Paul says that we're citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, that we're, each church is a colony of heaven. And that means that we are not only citizens of the United States, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we've been commanded to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. We've been told that if we see someone by the side of the road that needs help, we're to help them. We don't ask for their green card. We help them. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them water. It's not our job to enforce the immigration laws. That's the government's job. And so we have responsibilities as Christians to reach out to those in need, to those who are hurting. 
whether they are here legally or whether they're here illegally. Whether they, we, we are what Chuck Colson ministers in the prisons. Why? Because we have an obligation to minister to those that are justly incarcerated for their crimes. We still have an obligation and a responsibility as Christians to act redemptively toward them. That doesn't mean we let them all out of jail but until they've served their sentence. But we minister to them and seek to help them uh, come to an understanding that they can change their lives through Jesus Christ, and we can minister to their needs. Now, the Baptist faith and message, which is the confession of faith of our Southern Baptist Convention, reflects these, this difficulty on, on the border between where the church and the state intersect in the article on the Christian and the social order and the order on separation on religious liberty. I'm going to read the one on religious liberty first because it's the one that is often associated with us. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word are not, or are not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The last thing we as Baptists should ever want is government-sponsored religion. Government-sponsored religion is like getting hugged by a python. It squeezes all the life out of you and you fall over dead. Look at the empty cathedrals of Europe. When the government sponsors religion, the government thinks they own it. They think they can tell you how to do it and they will never get it right. We want a free church in a free state. As Roger Williams, our Baptist forefather, put it, for anyone, king, prince, or otherwise, to try to interfere coercively in a man or a woman's relationship with his or her God is soul rape. It is a sacred relationship, and no one has the right to coercively interfere with it. We must have freedom of conscience. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Now, let me just say to you, as a Baptist, to people who I assume are mostly Baptists, our country is not going to get the relationship between church and state and between religious freedom and freedom of conscience and the government's responsibilities right without our help. Because we are the ones who have carried this flame from the beginning. It is our unique contribution to the Reformation and the First Amendment to our Constitution is there because Baptists insisted that it be there in order for our Baptist forefathers to vote for the Constitution. And we must extend to others. No ecclesiastical group means the government doesn't ever get to decide. The government doesn't ever, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the government doesn't ever get to decide which religious groups are okay and which religious groups aren't. 
Once you give government the authority to do that, what they can do to one religion today, they can do to another religion tomorrow, and they can do to all religions the day after that. That is why we must defend the right of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Hare Krishnas to knock on our doors and bother us in airports. Because if we allow the government to restrict them today, they can restrict Baptists tomorrow. As Senator John F. Kennedy said in his famous speech to the Houston ministers on September the 12th, 1960, he said, today it is a Catholic that the finger of suspicion is pointed at. But in the past, and it may again be tomorrow, a Jew or a Quaker, or a Baptist. For after all, he reminded us, it was persecution of Baptists by the Anglican authorities in colonial Virginia that inspired Thomas Jefferson to write his Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, which gave government protection to Baptists who were being arrested. You see, in the last decade before the... um, Revolution and in the decade after the revolution, over 500 Baptist preachers were thrown in jail for, quote, disturbing the peace, end quote. Now, that's not the worst definition of preaching I've ever heard. But that's not what they meant by it. What they meant by it was that they were uh, preaching without a license from the state. And the Baptist preacher said, we don't need a license from the state to preach God's word. We are not the state's preachers. We're God's preachers, and we're going to preach whether the state authorities like it or not. Now, when it came time to ratify the Constitution, Baptists, as a result of the First Great Awakening, And as a result of the beginnings of the Second Great Awakening, Baptists had gone from being a small and persecuted sect in the United States to being the largest Protestant denomination. The John Leland and uh, Daniel Marshall and Shubal Stearns and the great Sandy Creek revival out of the Great Awakening turned the South from being the least religious part of the country to being the most religious part of the country, and the Baptists were the most numerous group. But in spite of that, at the time that the Constitution was ratified, nine of the original 13 states had official tax-supported churches that everyone had to pay taxes to, to support. And these churches, in various ways, discriminated against and often persecuted people who were not of the official religious faith. In New England, the official churches were congregational. And by the way, Massachusetts and Connecticut did not get rid of their their state-supported churches until 1833. In the South, they were Anglican and then after the Revolutionary War, Episcopal. And the Baptists, who held the balance of power in Virginia, had decided that they were going to vote against the Constitution because they had suffered so much under a state official church They were fearful that if we ratified a new federal government, that they would have a federal official church that would persecute them. And so John Leland, famous Baptist preacher, was going to 
was leading the fight against ratification. Well, he had gotten to know Madison and Jefferson over the years through the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom and other areas because Madison and Jefferson had sympathized with the Baptists in their struggle for religious freedom. And so James Madison and John Leland got together and had a three-hour meeting. Now, they were dedicated because they had a meeting under a tree in a foot of snow. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I want to talk about anything for three hours in the snow. But they did. Hardy folks back then. And at the end of that three-hour meeting, they cut a political deal. That's right. A Baptist preacher involved in a political deal. The deal was... Leland would agree, Leland would agree to withdraw as a candidate against the Constitution and would do his best to get Baptists to vote for the Constitution. And Madison promised that the first Congress under that new Constitution, he would sponsor an amendment to the Constitution that would say that Congress shall make no law affecting an establishment of religion nor interfering with the free exercise thereof. Our glorious First Amendment. So that's what happened. And the Baptists were the balance of power. And the Baptists carried the Constitution to ratification in Virginia. And if Virginia hadn't ratified it, it wouldn't have been ratified because Virginia was the 500-pound canary in early federal America. Four of our first five presidents were from Virginia. Virginia was the most populous state. Virginia was the richest state. Virginia, when, when Virginia got a cold, the rest of the colonies got pneumonia. Now, Leland believed in separation of church and state. Leland, who had been from Massachusetts, he had migrated during the Great Awakening to Virginia. He had been in Virginia for over two decades. He was the most famous preacher in Virginia. When Virginia, early in its federal history, right after ratification, during Washington's first term of office, Virginia voted and narrowly failed to outlaw slavery. How different the history of our nation might have been had that carried the day. But they narrowly failed outlawing slavery. Leland, who was a staunch opponent of slavery, left Virginia and went back to Massachusetts, where he became, I must confess, far more involved in a political campaign <coughs> than I think a Baptist preacher should. He was very much involved in Thomas Jefferson's campaign in 1800 to be president. He organized Western Massachusetts for Thomas Jefferson. He was not successful, of course, since John Adams, Jefferson's main opponent, was from Massachusetts. But on the first, I want, I want to picture, and I, I talk about this in more detail <coughs> in my, um, in my uh, book. The first, the Friday of the first new year that Jefferson was in the White House, back then, they inaugurated them later in the spring, but January the 1st, 1802. 
John Leland, by prearrangement, showed up at the White House at 10.30 in the morning with a 1,000-pound cheese on a wagon. He had gone by, he, they'd taken it by wagon. He had stopped along the way. It had become a famous cheese. He stopped, and people would you know, gawk at this 1,000-pound cheese, and he would preach, and uh, then they would move on. And so he showed up at 10.30 with this 1,000-pound cheese. Jefferson came out of the White House. They presented this cheese as a token of the regard of the people of western Massachusetts to Thomas Jefferson. Leland basically preached a sermonette. He praised Jefferson as God's man for the hour. He assured Thomas Jefferson that no Federalist cows had contributed any milk to this cheese. Only Democrat cows had been used. And uh, then he prayed God's blessings on Thomas Jefferson, and he left. Well, Jefferson had the cheese brought inside. Then Jefferson had lunch. Now, we do not know whether he had any of Leland's cheese for lunch or not. But we do know that after he had had lunch, that very afternoon, he took quill to paper, and he wrote his famous letter to the Baptist ministers of Danbury, Connecticut. The ministers of Danbury, Connecticut had written to Thomas Jefferson petitioning for redress of grievance because Connecticut had an established state church. All the Baptists in Connecticut had to pay taxes to support the state church. It was a congregational church. The government gave preference in every way in Connecticut to the Congregationalists. Jefferson wrote back to them saying that he believed there ought to be a wall of separation between the church and the state. Now, as my book goes into some detail about this, we now know from historical research that Jefferson's draft, his letter to the Baptist ministers of Danbury, Connecticut, went through several drafts. And he very consciously, very carefully said there ought to be a separation of church and state, not a separation of religion and state, not a separation of religion and society, but a separation of the institution of the church and the institution of the state, because he was writing to Baptist ministers in a state that had an established state church. Now, I want you to be sure you get this chronology. Friday morning, John Leland... Jefferson's friend shows up in the white, at the White House and gives him this 1,000-pound cheese. Friday afternoon, Thomas Jefferson writes the final draft of his letter to the Baptist ministers of Danbury, Connecticut, saying there ought to be a wall of separation between church and state. Sunday morning, the very next Sunday morning, Thomas Jefferson went to a religious service in the House of Representatives. Yes, in the House of Representatives. They had church services there every Sunday morning. And Jefferson sat on the front row while John Leland, his good friend who had given him the cheese, preached a sermon from 
the speaker's rostrum of the House of Representatives. And then on Monday morning, Leland came to the White House for a farewell meeting with Jefferson before he left and went back to Massachusetts. Thomas Jefferson, the architect of the University of Virginia, a state university that he designed with a chapel, Thomas Jefferson saw nothing in Congress, nothing inconsistent with writing a letter that said there ought to be a wall of separation of church and state on Friday afternoon and going to a worship service in the House of Representatives on Sunday morning where his good friend John Leland preached. And John Leland, who was as much of a believer in church-state separation as anyone, saw nothing inconsistent about preaching from the speaker's rostrum of the House of Representatives because it wasn't a state church service. It was a voluntary church service where the people came together to worship the Lord God. So that's just my way of telling you the ACLU is 100% wrong. Americans United is 100% wrong. People for the American way are 100% wrong. They have twisted and distorted our history almost beyond recognition. And in the time we have together today and tomorrow and the next day, we're going to examine that and we're going to talk about the role that God has played in our history, the role that he should play in our history, and the role that religion shouldn't play in our history and in our future. Now, this is the article on religious liberty. It says that the church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. It's our privilege, our obligation, our responsibility to share our faith, to preach the gospel, to make converts, to be salt and light. We shouldn't ask for the government to assist us in doing so. A free church in a free state. Then it goes on to say, the state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. We have absolute freedom of conscience in this country. We are free to be not punished for any opinions. Now, we can make certain actions illegal. Just to use a historical example, back when Mormons believed in polygamy, it was okay for them to believe in polygamy. It was okay for them to preach and advocate for polygamy. It just wasn't okay for them to have more than one wife. And when they had more than one wife, we arrested them because they broke the law. Back in the, when I was a student, they, we had this cult called the Children of God, and they were, they were really weird folks. And they would kidnap people and, and try to brainwash them into becoming children of God. Well, we didn't pass a law making the children of God's beliefs illegal. We just said, you can't kidnap people. That's illegal. You kidnap people, we're going to throw you in jail. You can't kidnap them whether you're trying to brainwash them to become members of the children of God or whether you're trying to sell them Tupperware. You can't hold people against their will. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men. All men. We must practice the golden rule here. We must, we must protect the freedom of others as much as we would want them to protect our freedom. Now that's the article on religious liberty, but then you turn back over to the article on the Christian and the social order. 
And it says all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Whoa. We're under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. It says, in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. <coughs> every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. Now, what our, what our Baptist faith and message is getting at there is we're to be salt and light. We're to go out into the society and change lives, one at a time. We are to seek to make a difference. Let me, let me say something to you which may shock you. I hope it doesn't, but it might. Government is a lagging indicator of social change. Societies change, and then the government reflects that. If we want America to be a, have a government that more reflects the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love of the gospel, we're going to have to change the country. And if we change the country, then the government will change. The gospel and the change of the gospel is the locomotive. Revival and awakening are the fuel, and government is the caboose. We've never had and we never will have a government-led revival. We never have had and we never will have a government-led reformation. If we want America to be the kind of country that God can and will bless, we're going to have to change the country. And the government can't do that. The government will reflect it. But what we must begin with is a revival. Every great spiritual movement in Christian history started with a revival among God's people. Now that word revival is an interesting word, isn't it? Revival. So you've got to be vived before you can be revived. A revival is what happens when God's people who have already been vived get revived. Then the revival, when it goes out into the society and we start seeing people whose hearts are changed and who experience rebirth in Christ, then you have awakening. And then if the spiritual truths of the awakening get applied to the social evils of the society, then you have reformation. We had a reformation that shook Europe and Britain. We had a great awakening that shook America. The great awakening in some ways was a reformation. In England, with Wilberforce, it led to the abolishment of the slave trade and the abolishment of slavery. In America, unfortunately, it didn't. 
until the great revival of 1858. You see, in the 1860 census, there were 26,000,000 white people in the northern states, and there were five million white people and three million slaves in the slave states. In 18, between 1858 and 1859, a 12-month period, the great, there was a great revival of 1858 that swept across the entire northern United States. In states with a population of 26 million, you had a million people added to the church rolls in one year. One million new church members in one year. And those million church members, those new million church members, provided the margin of victory for Abraham Lincoln to win a three-way election for the presidency with 43% of the vote. The great revival of 1858 elected Abraham Lincoln president. And I, in doing the research for this book, one of the, by the way, I recommend writing books. You learn a lot. I, I've learned a lot from every book I've ever written. And uh, I came across a document that was discovered about 60 years ago that was in Abraham Lincoln's papers. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln was struggling in his soul over the carnage and the bloodletting of the Civil War. It's impossible for those of us who live in the modern world to go back and to understand the shock and the horror that, that the Civil War must have been to the people who lived through it. Because there had never been a war like that. There had never been a war in human history where 20,000 people died in one day, ever, anywhere. The Civil War was the first modern war where people had come to the place where they actually had the capacity to kill 20,000 people. I live on the edge of a battlefield in Franklin, Tennessee that in four hours, on November the 30th, 1864, in four hours, 9,000 Confederate soldiers and 7,000 Union soldiers died in four hours. There had never been a war like that. And in 1862, when Lincoln wrote these words, there, it wasn't certain who was going to win. This, these were the darkest days of the war. And here's what he said. The will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. It may be that in this terrible struggle in which we are engaged, Neither side is completely right. And God may have sent this terrible war as a judgment on our whole nation for having profited from the bondage 
of our fellow men. And he goes on to say that it may not end until all of the ill-gotten wealth profiting from human bondage is ended. But then, at the end of the war, in his second inaugural address, which is surely the greatest inaugural address that will ever be given by an American president, he said, We do fervently hope and pray that the scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as it was 3,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who, has, who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Lincoln was a man of faith who was struggling with his God and how to deal with the calamity in which he was involved. I also discovered another document that I didn't know existed until I started doing the research for this book. On D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, our forces, along with the forces of the Allies, sought to liberate Europe by the invasion of the Normandy beachhead. The attack began at dawn. By that afternoon, Franklin Roosevelt knew that at least 12,000 American soldiers had been killed that day, securing that beachhead. As he sat in the library of the White House and began to construct his fireside chat that he was going to give to the nation that night. I have had about 15 people who were old enough to remember that address who have contacted me since this book was written to say they remember President Roosevelt's address. And they remember sitting in the living room with their family and President Roosevelt asking all of the people to get down on their knees and he was going to lead the nation to the throne of grace. Can you imagine? They'd have to put the whole ACLU on Prozac today. And here's, I put, I put the whole prayer, it's a prayer. I put the whole prayer in my appendix, but here's part of it. And so, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, our religion. You see, 
Franklin Roosevelt knew a war between good and evil when he saw it. Our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. Lord, lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard, for the enemy is strong. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, Help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in Thee in this hour of great sacrifice. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in Thee. Faith in our sons. Faith in each other. With Thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogancies. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. Lincoln and Roosevelt are just two parts of a glorious heritage. A heritage that can guide us, a heritage that can inspire us, a heritage that is ours to pass on to our children. Unless we let secularists and liberals and others who want to alter that heritage and rewrite that heritage take it from us. They cannot do so if we honor it, we know it, we live it, we protect it, and we defend it. God bless you. God bless your family. And God bless the United States of America. Brother Jerry.